Good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the preaching pastors here. It's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're in the midst of the series. We're walking through the book of Galatians, a series we've called Stay the Course. And uh, this morning we're in Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. So if you've got a Bible, you can open there to Galatians 3, 15 through 25. You can find it on page 973, I believe, in the House Bibles, 973. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to have it. So take that with you when you leave. Um, as you turn there, I want to give you a little heads up on our passage today. So uh, two of my favorite things to eat are ice cream and crab legs. Okay? And uh, for our, yes, thank you. I, I don't know which one you're clapping for. Hopefully both. Uh, so for our anniversary back in May, Kinsey and I went to this place called Glenn's Diner, which is down on Montrose, for all-you-can-eat crab legs. Uh, great, great feast that we enjoyed. And across the street from Glenn's Diner is, is one of our favorite ice cream shops in the city, uh, Margie's. So if you've been down there, uh, you, get, you, get great, you get huge portions of ice cream, and they give you dessert with your ice cream. They stick a little wafer cooker, cookie on there. It's legit, so you got to go check those things out. But here's the thing about ice cream and crab legs. So ice cream is really easy to eat, right? Like you, you put it in your mouth, it melts, and then you swallow it, and you get all the flavor and the full experience. But crab legs are a little different. With crab legs, you actually have to use tools to eat them. Right? Like they, they, somebody invented some, some sort of metal tool that you use that you, you have to use to crack the shell open. Because if you try to use your hands, your hands are going to start to bleed because the things are sharp and they're hard to break. And so if you want to eat crab legs, if you want to get the delicious meat, you've got to use some tools and you've got to put in some effort. You've got to put in some work so you can get to the good stuff and you can enjoy it. Well, there's some passages in the Bible that are like ice cream. They're real easy. You just kind of read the verse and you get all the goodness. But there's some other ones that you got to do some work to get to. you got to crack them open and you got to get the meat out. But, but, but you do it. You put in the work. You put in the effort because the meat is so sweet. It's so good. And the text we're in this morning is a lot more like crab legs than it is like ice cream. All right, so, so just a heads up as, as we get into it. Now, before we read it, I want to remind you of where we've been as well. Last week, we looked at the first half of Galatians 3, where Paul, uh, first half of Galatians 3, and in that text, Phil talked about the fact that we never leave the cross of Christ behind. Faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross is the essence of the Christian life. And really, through the whole of Galatians, we've seen this continual emphasis on the gospel of Jesus alone, faith alone. Over and over and over again, Paul has been beating that drum every way he knows how. He wants us to get this point. And today, after all this emphasis on Jesus alone, today we come to this crucial juncture in the letter where Paul brings up the role of God's law in the way that people relate to him. And so we get a theme about the law today. That's where we're going. So would you read it with me? And you can stand if you're able. We're going to read Galatians 3, 15 through 25. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Father, as we crack open this text today, as we work to get the good meat that is in it, I pray that you would help us. Would you help us to to taste it, to see the goodness of what you have for us here? Would you give us clarity? And I pray that the, the words that I speak would be like a helpful tool in our hands that we can get the good goodness that you want for us today. So would you speak, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the issue in our text is the role of God's law. And what is God's law? Well, after God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, God summoned Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. And atop Mount Sinai, God gave him the law. And you can think about the law kind of like a bicycle wheel. At the center of the wheel, you have the Ten Commandments. The first ten, the famous ten. And those Ten Commandments spell out uh, stipulations for relationship with God and relationship with people. And then from those Ten Commandments, the spokes go out. And the spokes are like the rest of the law. In, In the rest of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, you have another 603 commandments. They're like the spokes of the of the tire, the spokes of the wheel. And those other commandments uh, apply. And, and, uh, and apply the, the Ten Commandments to specific situations. They're like case law. And, and they give regulations for what to do when someone violates one of those commandments. So, so the, the, the spokes kind of go out from the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are the core. And the 613 commandments in total make up the wheel, the, the, the wheel that is the law of God. That's how you can think about the law. And so in Paul's day, the law was central to the life of God's people. To be a good Jew was to keep the law. It was commonly thought that by keeping the law, that's the way that you could secure salvation or blessing from God. But Paul has been preaching the gospel of Jesus alone throughout this letter. And it seems like, as you're reading it, that this this gospel of Jesus alone might de-emphasize the role of the law. So here in chapter 3, Paul addresses the issue. What is the proper place of of the law? How does that wheel fit into a relationship with God? And in Paul's day, there were at least two prevalent answers to that question. And to unpack this, we get it. I'm going to borrow an idea that Phil briefly introduced last week to help us out here. The situation is kind of like this. So uh, Kinsey and I, we have a membership to LA Fitness up in downtown Evanston. And a few times a week, I'll go there and play some basketball, uh, hoop a little bit. On Saturday mornings, I take Jason out on the court and I disciple him a little bit. That is what happens. I mean, you can ask him. 
<laughs> Preach. All right. <laughs> but uh, to have access to the club, if you want to go play basketball at LA Fitness, you got to have a membership. And to have a membership, it's going to cost you some money. you got to pay to get into the club. Now, when we first joined LA Fitness, we shopped around. We looked at a bunch of different spots, and we tried to find the best deal we could. We felt like we got the most for our money at LA Fitness. They got all the amenities we needed. They got a basketball court and a swimming pool and fitness machines, and they've got child care for super cheap. And so if you're looking for a gym membership, you can come join us at LA Fitness, Uh, especially if you can hoop. Come join us. You can get Disciple 2 on Saturday mornings. All right. (laughs) but with this gym membership we've got to pay to get into the club there's a price that has to be paid for us to belong and I told you a minute ago there were two ways that people in Paul's day viewed the role of the law well the first way was that uh, was was that the role of the law was was to function like the price that you have to pay to have your gym membership This is how most of the Jews in Paul's day viewed the role of the law. This is the way that uh, religion, even in our own day, operates. So in in Judaism and Hinduism, you have versions of ten commandments. In Islam, you have five pillars. In uh, Buddhism, you have five moral precepts. And if you keep the rules or you do the works, then you can secure salvation or blessing from God or from, uh, from whatever the deity is. You can, you can guarantee that you're going to have good things in this life and in the next life. Membership in the club and the benefits that come with it are earned through your performance. That's how religion operates. And that's one of the ways that people in Paul's day viewed the role of the law. But there's also a second way that people saw the role of the law. And it's similar, but it's subtly different. Some people in Paul's day saw the law not as the way that you pay the whole membership cost, but just as the way that you paid your monthly dues. So the Judaizers, who's one of the audiences that Paul's addressing here, they saw the law as, uh, they, they knew that Jesus was important. They believed in Jesus. They were Jews who had trusted in Jesus. They believed that he raised from the dead, that he was the Messiah, he was the Savior. And they thought, Jesus had paid your upfront initial down payment, your, your joiner's fee to get into the club. But then you still had to pay your ongoing monthly dues, the smaller monthly regular fee, by keeping works of the law, by doing the law. And if we're honest, this is how a lot of us view uh, the law today. This is how a lot of professing Christians operate. We know that Jesus is important. We know he died to pay for our sins. We know he forgives us when we mess up. But when it comes to daily living, what we really believe deep down is that we have to keep the law in order to pay our dues to God. And if we don't keep, those, keep the law, if we don't do enough good things, then we risk getting kicked out of the club, losing our membership, or, or suffering some sort of consequences as a result. So we have to go to church. We have to give money to the poor. We have to take communion, or pray certain prayers, or read the Bible a certain amount, or serve in some ministry a certain amount, or, or not do certain bad things. If we mess up in any of those ways, then our membership won't stay current and God's going to kick us out. We see the law as the way that we pay our dues and keep ourselves in the club. So in either of those two cases, 
Lots of people in Paul's day and lots of people in our own day see the law as the way in which you pay all or part of the cost to belong to God's family and secure salvation and blessing now and forever. That's how we see the law. That idea is super common. But is it correct? Well, that's the, that's the issue that Paul addresses in this passage. What is the proper role of the law? And as we look at what Paul says, we're going to see first what the law can't do, and then what the law can do. So first, what the law can't do. Look at verses 15 through 18. And let me walk through Paul's logic here so we can see exactly what he's arguing. In verse 16, he brings up the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And about 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, God called Abraham to himself and he made a promise to him. He told Abraham that God was going to bless him and his family, give them a land of their own, and then through them bless the whole world, bless all the nations. And at the time that he got this promise, Abraham was an old man with no kids. So you can imagine that this was a little hard for him to believe. A childless old man in a culture that valued having children, getting this promise from God, it seems absurd. And so one night, God takes the old geezer outside and he has him look up at the stars in the sky. And he says, Abraham, count them. See how many you can count. Now, if we do that here in Chicago, you get like six. <laughs> but for Abraham... He goes outside in the ancient world with no light pollution. And he looks up at the vast canopy of the stars in the sky. And he sees thousands upon thousands of them. And God says to him, Abraham, you see those stars? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how great your descendants are going to be. That's how big your family is going to be. God promised Abraham that blessing. And here's the important thing about it. What God asked from Abraham in return for that promise was not that he keep a list of rules or laws. What God asked of Abraham was simply that he would trust him. God wanted Abraham's faith. He wanted him to believe him, to put his full reliance in him. And if you look up at chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, a little earlier in the passage, You'll see Paul actually quote a key verse from that story about Abraham back in Genesis. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now righteousness is right standing with God. It's having a right relationship with God. It's what you need in order to have salvation. And so it's like Abraham had a righteousness account in God's bank. And that account was bankrupt. There was no money in the bank of Abraham's own doing. But the very instant, the moment that Abraham believed God, what God did is he put money in the bank for Abraham. He said, Abraham, you are now right with me. Not because of what you've done, not because of the works you've done or a law that you've kept, but you are right with me simply because you've believed, because you've trusted me. I'm putting money in the bank for you. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. So when verse 18 in our text talks about the fact that the inheritance was given to Abraham by a promise, that's what Paul is talking about. 
The inheritance here is the blessing and salvation that God himself gave to Abraham with that promise. And faith in that promise is what secured the blessing and the salvation for Abraham. And so as Paul starts talking about the role of the law, the first thing that he points out is that the law came after the promise. It came way after the promise. Verse 17 says that the law came hundreds of years later. And then in verse 20, Paul adds another layer to his argument. He says not only did the law show up late to the game, but it also showed up through someone else. It showed up through an intermediary. The promise came straight from God to Abraham. But with the law, there was a go-between. It came through Moses via angels. And so for both of those reasons, because the law came late and because it came through an intermediary, Paul says that the promise, that promise that God gave to Abraham, that promise has priority over the law. The promise has priority. And that's the point that he illustrates with this human example he gives in verse 15. So he says, to give a human example. Now, imagine for a second that you're a young woman. You're like 18 or 19 years old. And suddenly and tragically, both of your parents pass away. But they've planned ahead, and so they have a will that they've made out for you. And in that will, they say that you get everything upon their death. You get the house, you get the money, you get the cars, you get the boat, you get the recliner in the living room, you get the food in the refrigerator, you get it all. It's all coming your way. And you go and you sit down at the judge's office and you're sitting across the desk from him with your lawyer. And the judge reads the will and he says, yes, you get it all. Because of the will, you get it all. But then the judge reaches into his desk and he pulls out a sheet of paper. And he starts writing. And on the sheet of paper, he writes, uh, he writes some stuff down. And then he looks up at you and he reads what he wrote. And when he reads, he says, the will says that you get it all. But I've determined that because you're so young, we're going to add some conditions to this. In order for you to inherit everything your parents have promised to you, you're going to have to graduate from a good college and secure a good job and start doing community service regularly. And because you're going to get so much in this inheritance, you're going to have to give a lot of it away. And once you meet those requirements, once you keep these additional requirements, then you will actually get the inheritance. Now, I know we have some lawyers in the room, but you don't have to be a lawyer to know that that doesn't fly. (laughs) Right? If the judge says that to you, he has no authority on which to say that to you. He can't add conditions to the promise that was made to you by your parents. The will has priority. That's the point that Paul is making. And so as Paul puts it, even with a man-made covenant, with a man-made will, no one adds to it, no one annuls it, no one cancels it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You don't change it after the deal has been sealed. And the deal directly between God and Abraham was sealed hundreds of years before the law of Moses came onto the scene. God's promise to Abraham has priority. The law showed up late to the game through an intermediary, and it can't annul or change the promise that God made to Abraham. It can't override or replace the promise. And this is where we see the point that Paul is making about what the law can't do. What he's saying is that the law can't be the means of securing salvation or blessing for us. When it comes to membership in God's family, the law can't get you in or keep you in. It can't. 
But here's the thing. Getting us in and keeping us in is exactly what we so often want the law to do for us. That's how we view the law. We want our ability to be able to perform up to some standard to be what gets us into the club. And we're trained this way in every way from a really early age. Tests in school, tryouts for athletic teams, auditions for the arts, resumes and interviews for jobs. It's all based on our performance. And so when it comes to religion, we just take that same principle from all these other areas of our lives and we apply it to the way that we relate to God. We are spring-loaded to perform. Everything in us wants to do it. And deep down, we put our trust in our own religious or moral behavior. We want the law to be the means by which we earn salvation and blessing from God. And what Paul says here in this text is, No, that is not how it works. Verse 18 implies that the inheritance never came by the law. And verse 21 makes it clear that the law can't give life. The law can't secure salvation or blessing. That was never God's intention with the law. In fact, if you read the Exodus story where God gives the law in the first place, he gives the law to a people who he has already saved. He just rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and called them to be his people. He made them his own before he gave them the law. The law is not the condition of a relationship. It's the response to a relationship. It doesn't make them God's people. They get it because they already are. And so the point is that the law can't get you in or keep you in. The law can't do what we want it to do. That was never the point of God's law. The promise always had priority. But if getting us in with God isn't the purpose of the law, then what is? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? And here we'll see that while the law can't do what we want it to do, the law can do exactly what we need it to do. And let me warn you in advance that this part is going to hurt before it feels better. What Paul says here is going to be like your mom pouring some hydrogen peroxide on your knee after you've skinned it real bad. So it's going to sting a little, but the sting is going to help us. There are two things the law can do, and they're the two things that we desperately need it to do. To do. You see the first thing the law can do immediately after Paul's question in verse 19. He writes, It was added because of transgressions. Now, the ESV translation here doesn't quite capture the full force. To transgress means to overstep a boundary, to cross a line that you're not supposed to cross. Transgressions are like sins, but they're more than sins. They're sins that you know that you are now committing. They're sins where you can clearly see that there's a boundary that has been crossed. So the way that the, the New Living Translation renders this verse helps capture the idea. It says, why was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. The law didn't come to save, it came to show. It came to show us our sins. It came to show us the reality of our rebelliousness against God. Now, most of us think of ourselves as pretty good people, right? We look at all the people around us. We compare ourselves to all of their obvious failures. Then we minimize our own failures. And then we think we're doing pretty good. That's how we operate. But what happens 
If instead of comparing ourselves to the other people around us, we instead compare ourselves to God's standard in the law. What happens when God gives us 613 commandments against which to evaluate ourselves? And what happens when those 613 commandments not not only address our outward actions, but also our inner thoughts, motives, and intentions every moment of every day and everything that we do? What happens when we measure ourselves against God's standard of perfection instead of against our own standards of imperfection? What happens then? Well, all of a sudden, it's a lot harder to maintain that you're a good person. For my day job, I work in campus ministry up at Northwestern and at a bunch of other schools here in the city. And on campus, I regularly do this little thought experiment with college students. I'll ask them to guess how many of the Ten Commandments they've kept in their lives. Now, most of the time, they can't name the Ten Commandments. So after we uh, cross that barrier, then we, we, we kind of sort that out, and then they'll throw out a guess. And usually, they'll estimate that if there are ten They probably keep seven or eight of them somewhat consistently. Like they give themselves a B or a C and hope that God grades on a curve the way that their professors do. That's how they, that's how it works. But then what we'll do is we'll actually open up the Ten Commandments and we'll walk through them one at a time. And we'll use the commandments as a rubric, asking the question, how many of these have you consistently kept throughout your life? And the craziest thing happens. Almost everybody, when we do that, we go through and we say, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You ever worshipped anything, had anything else in your life that's more important to you than God? O for 1. And we walk through, O for 2, O for 3, O for 4, all the way down. And almost everybody at the end of that says, I miss every single one of these. I'm O for 10. A few people will say, yeah, there's one or two that I've kept pretty good. But when when people rightly understand what the law is requiring, when they look at these commandments and see what God is actually asking, almost everybody sees that when you evaluate your inward thoughts, motives, and intentions on these things, almost everybody sees that they've actually failed to keep almost all of them. And at that point, if you're looking at this law to save you, you're wrecked. The law can't save you. It just shows you how bad you are. It crushes you. The law can't save you. And Paul tells us why it can't save us earlier in chapter 3. He's, in 3.10 he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you're going to measure yourself against God's standard, then God's standard is perfection, and you've got to bat a thousand. Now that's baseball language for you've got to be perfect. You can't miss even one time. If you're going to rely on the law to save you, you've got to do it flawlessly. There's no margin for error. But all of us miss. All of us mess up. And we miss bad. We are not nearly as good as we like to think we are. When we compare ourselves to God's standard, we find out that we're actually far worse than we ever imagined. We're under his curse and we deserve his judgment. Let me make this really personal. You are not as good as you think you are. If you're relying on your own moral performance in life to make you right with God and secure blessing from him, then you are lying to yourself. You're not good enough to do it. You can't earn it. It's not going to happen. 
The law is like a diagnostic test. It's like getting a scan that shows you that you have cancer all over your body. The scan can't heal you. It can't make you better. And it's not meant to. The scan just shows you that you desperately need treatment. It shows you that you're sick and you need some help. And I know that this stings. This isn't like a happy thing to talk about. And it may not seem like good news, but but think about this. If you've got cancer, that's something you need to know about. An accurate diagnosis is your friend because it makes it possible for you to then seek treatment and get the help that you need. And so the first thing that the law can do for us is it can diagnose us. It can show us how sin sick we really are. But there's also a second thing the law can do. And it's here that we actually move toward treatment. In verse 21, Paul asks another question. He says, if the law was added to show us how sinful we are, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law opposed to the promises of God? God made this promise to Abraham that he would bless him and his family if they would depend on him through faith. But then this law came that showed them and shows us how terrible we actually are. So does the law go against the promise? Should we just ignore the law? Should we get rid of it? Well, look at Paul's answer. Certainly not. His answer is actually the strongest possible negation in the Greek here. The law does not contradict the promise. The case Paul makes is it's not contrary to the promise. It's actually complementary. And here's how. Paul uses these two metaphors for the law in verses 22 through 25. In 22 and 23, he says the law is a jailer who holds us captive and keeps us locked in prison. It's like we're locked up awaiting trial. What he's getting at is the reality of life under the law. When you live under the law, you're always a prisoner of your own performance. You can't live a life of freedom and joy because you always have to maintain your standing in the club. You're always chasing rewards and fearing punishment. You're never free. So you live this life of emotional bondage where you're filled with anxiety about your standing with God. You're a prisoner anxiously awaiting a trial you fear you're going to lose. You're a prisoner awaiting this day of judgment, hoping beyond hope for an acquittal that you don't think is actually going to come. So the law is like a jailer. But then in verses 24 and 25, Paul switches the metaphor from a jailer to a guardian. And the word guardian here is a word that actually refers to this particular office in the household of wealthy first century families. For wealthy families, the guardian was a slave in the household who was responsible for rearing and disciplining the children. The guardian's role was an instructive one. Their job was to provide basic care for the child while teaching the child manners and social customs. So from about age five up through adolescence, the guardian was the primary shaping influence in the child's life. And in the ancient literature, these guardians are frequently characterized as harsh disciplinarians. Uh, They're regularly pictured in images of them holding a cane in their hands, a rod to to beat the badness out of the kids. They were kind of like, you can think of like strict governesses in English society of old, like Mary Poppins with a cane instead of an umbrella. So the guardians were harsh, but they had a purpose. Their job was to prepare their charge for a life of freedom and maturity as an adult member of the family. So their role was only temporary. 
and it pointed beyond themselves to a time when the child would be full-fledged in the family. And in that way, Paul says, the law is like a guardian. Now, both of these metaphors, the law as a jailer and as a guardian, both of them, they have this tough but temporary role to play. By using these metaphors, Paul shows us that the law was never intended to be forever. It was always meant to point beyond itself. And this is how the law complements the promise. And this is where we see the cure come into view. I want to encourage you to do some, some underlining in your Bibles right here. If you've got a pen, I want you to mark this. Look at verse 23. Underline the word until. Everything was imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Look at verse 24. Underline the word until. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Y'all, there was always an expiration date on the role of the law as our jailer and our guardian. And this is where this text all comes together. For God's people of old, as Paul says it in verse 19, and you can do some more underlining here, the law was given because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Back in verse 16, Paul made this argument based on the singular noun offspring. He said that the promise was made to Abraham and to one particular of his many descendants. The promise was that if you and your descendants will trust me, then I will bless you and I will bless your family and the whole world through you. But Abraham didn't perfectly trust God. And neither did many of his many descendants through the generations. We just preached through, gen- through, through judges. We saw how bad Israel is, right? And we're all sick and we all need help. But there was one descendant of Abraham's who didn't have the disease. There was one who was perfectly faithful. One who perfectly trusted God. Two millennia after the promise and two millennia ago for us today, one descendant of Abraham lived a perfectly faithful life. He kept up his end of the deal with God. He perfectly trusted God and he lived a righteous life. And then he went to the cross to take the, cure, to take the curse and to shed his blood to be our cure. And he did it all so that we could inherit the promised blessing that only he deserves. His name was Jesus. And he is the cure for the cancer of our souls. He is the remedy for our rebellion. He is the key to our prison cell. He marks our graduation from our guardian. And he makes us full-fledged members in God's family. So here's the point. Trust the promise. Not your works. Not the law. Not the process. Trust the promise. What Paul is saying in this whole passage is that God gave the law to show us our need to trust him and to show us back to the promise that we started with. The law can't save you, but it can show you your need for a savior. And it can be your jailer and your guardian until you see the beauty of the promise and you turn to God in saving faith. So for that reason, the big idea this morning in this passage, and really the big idea that runs through the whole scope of the entire Bible from Abraham through Moses through David and the prophets to Jesus through Revelation, the whole thing, it's trust the promise. The promise of salvation and blessing by faith and faith alone. 
And what this means for us today is that we need to preach this promise to ourselves and to others. What people need is not more law, but more promise. They don't need more religion. They need more gospel. Your non-believing friends do not need you to tell them that they need to get their stuff together and start acting better. They are, some of them already act a lot better than you do anyway. And the other ones, their biggest problem is not that they drink too much or sleep around too much or cuss too much. Their biggest need is not behavior modification. They don't need to start acting like what you think a Christian should act like. And if you give them the law, they're not going to be able to do it any better than you can. The law won't save them. But Jesus will. And that's the message they need to hear. The law can diagnose their problem, but only Jesus can cure it. And so as you engage with your non-believing friends, you lead with the promise, not with the law. You lead with the promise that anyone, regardless of your past, regardless of how bad you've done at keeping commandments, anyone can be made right with God now and forever through faith in Jesus alone. Your primary job as a witness is to point people to Jesus, point them to the promise. And if that's you here today, if you're one of those friends and you're with us and you're hearing all of this and you're realizing that your sin is a huge deal to God and that you need a Savior, know today that Jesus offers that promise to you as well. The religions of the world will tell you that you need to be a better person and you can save yourself. They lower the bar on how good you've got to be and then they tell you that you can do it. But only Christianity tells you the truth that you can't do it. That God's standard is this high and you're not going to make it. And only Christianity offers you a real hope that can really get you there. Jesus gave his life on the cross to set you free from the curse of law and sin and death. And so trust his promise. Believe in him. Put your faith in him so that he can save you and bless you now and forever. But y'all, this message is not just for non-believers. It's also for believers. And we need to preach the gospel to ourselves as well. Look, some of you here today, you're genuine believers in Christ who are just weighed down by this burden of trying to perform to maintain your membership in God's club. Like every time you mess up, you think he's going to cut you off. If you sleep through your quiet time, you think you're going to be useless to God that day and you couldn't do anything good in your life. If you lust, you feel like you have to take a shower before you go and talk to God about it. If you get angry for some reason, you think God is going to be angry at you and he's going to take it out on you by causing you to lose that big deal you've been working on. If something bad happens in your life, you think it's because God is punishing you because you haven't prayed enough. If you mess up in any way, you think think that you've forfeited whatever blessings God would have given you if you hadn't messed up. That is not the gospel. That's the tyranny of the law. And the gospel says that the law can't terrorize you anymore. You are free from its dominion. You're not under its tyranny. Your standing with God is not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done. And he paid everything for your membership in God's family now and forever. Jesus paid it all. That is the gospel. And you need to preach it to yourself. And so when you mess up, run straight to him. He wants you to come to him immediately. He wants wants you to experience his abundant forgiveness and his lavish grace. He wants you to experience the freedom that you can have as his son or daughter. 
And so today, know that the way that we get and maintain membership in God's family is not by paying our own dues. Salvation and blessing from God do not come through keeping the law. They come through faith and faith alone. That was the promise that God made to Abraham, and it's the promise that he fulfilled in Christ. It's the promise that's available to us today. Jesus paid it all, so trust his promise. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you made a promise four millennia ago. A promise that you continue to fulfill to us today. We praise you that we don't have to earn our relationship with you. We don't have to earn membership in your club. But we can receive it as a free gift from you through faith in Christ alone. God, I pray you'd help us to live in that reality. To preach that message to our neighbors and to ourselves. And to believe it ourselves. As we go through life and we do fail, as we fail to keep the law, would you point us back to the promise and help us to trust in you, the one who has forgiven us and given us life through Christ alone. Help us to trust your promise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.